So our text this morning is uh, Psalm 83. I'll be preaching through the psalm in two parts, so this morning the sermon will cover verses 1 through 8, although I'd like to read the entire psalm, so hear God's word as I read Psalm 8. O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, and as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Edmund Burke was an Irishman who was a member of the English House of Commons in the 1700s. And he is best remembered for his words, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And this truth has borne itself out in a number of ways. When abortion first reared its ugly head in our country quite a number of years ago now, the church was, as I recall, caught snoozing. It took quite a while even for solid biblical churches to make a public stand against abortion. Meanwhile, evil triumphed. And so it can also be in our homes and churches that those of us who are in authority and whose job it is to guard and to lead those under us in the ways of God, we can become lazy, lethargic, even asleep. As parents, we can become lax in how we guard our children spiritually. Many of our children are homeschooled, but we still must not on that basis assume that all that they are being taught is, is that all of it's okay Um, But the curriculum that you use that purports to be Christian needs to be examined and evaluated. Um, There is more, as as parents, we must concern ourselves with who our children have as friends, what books they read, what television programs they watch, what values and what thinking patterns they are getting exposed to from the world. And our children must be taught the scriptures and what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ and, yes, attending church and Sunday school, these things are good and important, but it's also vital that at home your children are instructed in the word of God and and you are to see to it that their minds are molded to think biblically, and especially since their minds are being 
influenced rather naturally by an evil society that is all around us, there must be an extra aggressive approach to counteract this falsehood with the truth of Scripture. So we are to protect our young people from the evil one. And in the church, God has placed elders in a position of authority in order to guard the church spiritually. And yes, it can happen that elders become lax, where we take the easy road of assuming that everyone in the church is just doing fine spiritually. Uh, We can take a hands-off approach where we never involve ourselves in your lives. Uh, We may hear of a struggle you're having with sin and just decide to leave it alone. Um, We may align ourselves, perhaps, with the attitude of many today who think that doctrine is not important, and so it's possible that we begin to shy away from in-depth teaching of the scriptures and from studying and refuting false doctrine. In these things, you may wonder what I am getting at and how this relates to Psalm 83. Well, what I'm getting at is that there are spiritual enemies. There are spiritual enemies who are all around us who want to destroy us. In Psalm 83, the psalmist Asaph is calling upon God to deliver his people from their enemies. I think sometimes we forget that we have spiritual enemies. Uh, Probably more often we just choose to ignore or at least minimize this reality. We, We very easily imagine that we're not in danger. Yes, we know Satan is out there. We know that he has demons. We know that false doctrine and false teachers exist. We know that there are people who hate us as Christians who would like to see our freedoms taken away. We know these things, but do we take these enemies seriously? Do we really believe that we are in danger? Part of the problem is that in our day and age, we aren't able to recognize our enemies as clearly as Old Testament Israel was able to do. I mean, the psalm here before us names, actually names, Israel's enemies. For Old Testament Israel, essentially any and every other nation around them was an enemy. And you can recognize that uh, they, as the Old Testament church, right, they were the people of God, the assembly of God, the congregation of God. In the Old Testament, they had these very tangible enemies. Well, the enemies of the church today, we, Enemy, our enemies are much more subtle. Our enemies come as friends. Our enemies come as teachers, politicians, neighbors, who may very well seem like nice people, but who can lead us away from being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, leading us into sinful behavior, steering us away from the truth of God's word. Of course, Satan also works in other ways to fill our minds with lies and to turn us away from the truth. Satan is behind Hollywood's desire to use television to erode Christian values on many issues, including biblical marriage and dating and the use of money and life purpose. Satan's been busy. He remains busy in his attempts to lead God's people, to lead you and me down a path of spiritual ruin. Which brings us then to the theme, the subject matter here of of Psalm 83, and this psalm, as, as was mentioned a moment ago, is a psalm of Asaph, and the psalms of Asaph have in common that the psalmist is troubled by wicked enemies, and he calls upon God to rise up and to defeat them. And this morning, we turn our attention to the first half, essentially, of this psalm, verses 1 through 8, where we find a description of the trouble that Israel faced from these enemy nations. And I want to point out several things that we learn about these enemies from the text. 
So I'm going to read again verses 1 through 8. Psalmist says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. And again, I want to point out several things that we learn about these enemies. And first of all, we see that these enemies are enemies of God. And I want to make it clear that we need to distinguish between personal enemies and spiritual enemies. Sometimes we have what are more accurately called personal enemies. And uh, this is the kind of person who's perhaps upset with you for any number of reasons. Perhaps you have behaved in an ungodly way. Uh, Maybe you said something hateful. Maybe you cheated, lied. Maybe you failed to meet a responsibility. Sometimes we make enemies by our sin, by the wrong things we do. And sometimes people also personally hate us just because they're envious, perhaps, of our talents or our successes or abilities. Uh, You children may find yourself suddenly with someone who seems like an enemy because you just won a game and they're, they're upset with you for that success. Or you adults may have an enemy because someone is covetous of your possessions or of your abilities. Well, Psalm 83 is talking about a different kind of enemy. It's talking here about spiritual enemies. I'm talking, this is those who hate Christians, who hate us as people of God for no obvious reason. So what explains their hate? Well, Satan is behind their hate. Their sin nature is behind their hate. And they may not understand it themselves, but unbelievers express their hatred of God by hating God's people. Maybe that someone hates you because your good works make that person look bad. John um, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, there Jesus says that those who practice evil hate the light because it exposes their deeds. And enemies may hate you because you speak to them of their need to repent, before God and and trust Christ, you're you're witnessing to them and they don't want to hear a message that ultimately stabs at their pride and tells them that they are not able to save themselves. If you know somebody that attacks you and there's no real outward reason to explain it, it's probably spiritual warfare that is going on. It may also be that you have enemies who consider themselves to be your friends. They don't consciously hate you. They do not purposely seek your harm, but they do harm you by being a negative, um, um, ungodly influence upon you. You may have a friend that you in many ways respect and even enjoy being with, but this person perhaps puts pressure on you to do wrong things. This person talks you into doing things contrary to what Christ would have you to do. And you may like this person, and yet this person, from a spiritual perspective, is really an enemy. And while this person likely doesn't realize it, He's a tool in the hand of Satan to tear you down spiritually. The focus of this psalm is on those enemies who hate us because they are enemies of God. Notice verse 2, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. So the psalmist could recognize that these nations that were attacking Israel 
were really enemies of God. The God that they hated was out of reach in heaven, and so the next best thing is to attack God's people. You see, the idea is to get at God in a roundabout way. And this is analogous to the convicted criminal who, in order to avenge the judge who sentenced him to, pr to prison, harms members of the judge's family. Well, this all mentions, mentions 11 enemy nations or cities in verses 6 through 9. There's Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, the city of Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, Asher, or um, your translation may have there, Assyria, and then also Midian. And we're not going to take the time this morning to go into great detail about these enemies, but I would point out that some of these names refer to people who were once outwardly connected to the covenant of God, but were rejected from the covenant. And inspired by Satan, they were a covetous, envious people who made it their mission to harass and even to destroy God's chosen nation of Israel. So, for example, Edom is mentioned here in this psalm. And Edom was the nation that came from Esau. He was the son of Isaac who sold his spiritual birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. He was an evil, reprobate man whose jealousy of his brother Jacob's blessing was a root of bitterness that, that blossomed and grew in the hearts of his descendants. The Ishmaelites were descendants of Abraham's son Ishmael, born of Abraham's concubine Hagar, and God established his covenant with Isaac and not Ishmael. And this created great resentment. The nations of Moab and Ammon also had connections to the people of God. Uh, Moab and Ammon were sons born to Lot's daughters. They were born out of sin. They were born out of unbelief. They had no part of the blessing of the covenant made with Abraham. And the battles that these nations made against Israel must be explained in the context of their rejection from the covenant. These nations were spiritual enemies whose jealousy was used by the devil as a tool to try to destroy God's chosen people. When we come to the New Testament and the church is no longer associated with the nation of Israel, but is a, a body of believers from all nations, the spiritual warfare takes on new forms, and yet in some ways it's very similar. There even continue to be nations who take up positions against Christianity and the church. Communist nations have tried to eradicate the Christian church. Muslim nations regard the, the, the church and Christians as, as enemies. And even our nation, they view right or wrong as a Christian nation. And so they, they hate us. And while there's still a spiritual warfare going on among nations, spiritual warfare in the New Testament is more often directed against churches and against us as individual believers from sources closer to home. The form of the spiritual attack in the New Testament uh, may be different from that of the Old Testament, but the hatred of God that is behind it doesn't change. Jesus warned us as New Testament believers that we would experience the hate of those who hate him. Matthew 24, 9 says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So our enemies are those who hate God. 
And second, bring us to our second point, the devil is using every strategy he can to destroy us. Verse 3 speaks of how God's enemies plan and they scheme how they might destroy us. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. Now, in the Old Testament, the strategy against God's people had to do with strategies of war involving physical weapons. The Edomites and these other nations would try to figure out the best military strategy. They would try to figure out the military weaknesses of Israel and strategize how to take advantage of those weaknesses. And they attacked Israel when vulnerable. Today, the devil also continues to use tactics. He thinks through the best way to get to you. Ephesians 6, the the well-known chapter on spiritual warfare, speaks of the wiles of the devil. The devil is tricky. He is deceptive. He masquerades as an angel of light, which means that he will come to you in a deceitful way, pretending to be what he is not. He leads you in in a wrong direction, presenting the wrong way in an attractive way. And he even uh, sets forth false doctrine in an attractive way by coming to us uh, with that, that false doctrine, making it sound like the truth. So, for example, if a teacher were to come to you saying that we are saved by our works, you would immediately, I would hope, you would immediately know that he was false. But if a teacher comes to you saying, as false teachers do today, that you are saved by faith alone, but then they change the definition of faith to include works, you can see how you've got to be spiritually and doctrinally on your toes if you're going to catch the error. When it comes to the wrong way of life, your spiritual enemies will will seek to convince you that evil is good and good evil. And uh, being the religious person you are, they will even try to convince you that their sinful way of life is biblical. So there are pastors that will that do say that abortion is okay, um, divorce for any reason is okay, that couples living before, together before marriage is okay, homosexuality is okay, having women in church office is okay, sinful ways of life are being endorsed and approved by the leadership in so-called churches of Jesus Christ, and they will get out their Bibles and they will pretend to draw out support um, for these things that that they, they teach by twisting passages, by leaving out other passages. And if you're not a regular student and, and reader of the Bible, you may find yourself being duped. The, the, the devil is tricky. Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's busy, he's skilled at what he does, deceiving and destroying. And then third, the enemies of God, your enemies want nothing less than your complete destruction. Verse four, they say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. The nations around Israel were not content until every last Israelite was killed. And the devil wants nothing less than to see the church of Jesus Christ wiped off the face of this earth. And he does not love those who are under his dominion. All he thinks about is hurting God. Whatever he can do to disrupt God's plan of salvation, that is his mission. His goal, therefore, is to grasp onto as many people as he can, drawing them away from God and Christ and salvation. And he will not stop until the day that Christ returns. For the enemies of God are united in their efforts. 
Verse 5, for they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. So the nations around Israel, they formed these covenants, they banded together, they, they formed a united front. Now we don't know of any time in Israel's history when all of these enemies were united, but scripture tells us of many alliances that were formed among these enemies. And even though the enemies of God are in many ways different, they understand that there's power in numbers and they are willing to set aside their differences in order to accomplish their common purpose against God and his people. Your enemies, understand, are determined, they are organized, they are united. And five, your spiritual enemies are all around you. They surround you. I I spent some time looking up where these various enemy nations and cities that are listed are located. Most biblical maps have these nations marked. You're perhaps not familiar with the Hagrites. Um, Authorities tell us that these were a people that lived to the east of Palestine, and Gibal was a city to the north and west. And if you take the time to look up these peoples and these nations on a map, you will see that they surround Israel to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. From every direction, Israel was surrounded by enemies who all wanted to see Israel destroyed. The situation has not really changed all around us our spiritual enemies. Virtually everywhere we turn, there are temptations. You go to your home and turn on the television or, or, or um, uh, fire up your computer. Um, if you're not careful, there are spiritual enemies that are immediately talking to you and your family, breaking down Christian values, contradicting the Bible. Books and magazines can come into our homes that are spiritually destructive. The internet can bring all sorts of evils and temptations right into your own home. And then you come across other people through school, in your neighborhoods, in your work, who are not a good spiritual influence, and maybe even within your own family, extended family. And then there's the church. Church is a safe place, right? Surely at church we get away from Satan. But if you understand how he works, church is one of his favorite places to be. He wants there to be things that distract you from worship. He doesn't want you concentrating on the preaching of the word. He doesn't want you to to know the truth, but he wants to bring false doctrine into the church. And he wants Christians to fight and to argue. No matter where you go, what you do, be alert for spiritual enemies. Be expecting them. What I'm describing may be kind of overwhelming to think about and perhaps even discouraging to think about. I'm guessing that, like me, you don't want to think of the Christian life as waging war. When you think about what I've said about your spiritual enemies, the spiritual dangers that we constantly face, you may wonder, well, how am I supposed to stand? How can I stand? And what you must realize is that you can't stand on your own. But you can stand against these enemies with God on your side. You can stand through God's power at work in you. You can stand when you make use of the weapons that God has given you, including his word. Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then skipping down toward the end, the apostle says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, 
being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So Paul ends in talking about spiritual battle with the importance of prayer. He emphasizes the role of prayer. And Psalm 83 is a prayer for victory and for protection against our enemies. So knowing the strength and the determination of the enemy, you must pray to God for protection. You must take refuge in God. For we can't and we won't stand against our spiritual enemies in our own strength. By nature, we are born into this world as sinners under the spiritual dominion of Satan. It's only through Christ that we are set free. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ and only by his merits that any of us can ever be delivered from the devil. Think of it, without Christ, Satan would have every right to us, which is why scripture describes salvation there's a number, I mean, Scripture describes salvation in a number of ways, but one of the ways, one of the things that is brought to our attention is that salvation is about Christ defeating Satan. Example, Hebrews 2, verse 14, talking about Jesus says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." How are unbelievers described in Scripture as children of the devil? It's the gospel that delivers. It's Christ that delivers us from this spiritual state of bondage to the devil and death. For as the gospel comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made new creatures in Christ. No longer slaves of sin, no longer slaves of Satan. And if the power of God has touched your heart, you know the seriousness of of your sin before our holy God and you grieve over your sin and you repent of your sin, confessing it and turning from it. At the same time, you turn to Christ in faith for forgiveness and righteousness. You receive him as your only hope for right standing with God. You seek in him the righteousness that you need. By resting upon him alone for salvation, you can be sure that his righteousness is imputed to you which means that his righteousness, his perfect record, is put to your account in such a way as as to cover your own sinful record. What I'm describing is what Scripture talks about as a deliverance or a salvation, as a a transference from the kingdom of darkness, where Satan is ruler, into the kingdom of light, where God is your Father and Christ is your Lord. What I hope you understand and appreciate is that it is Christ who not only has fulfilled the demands of the law through his perfect obedience and death on the cross, but also sees to it that his work is applied to our lives unto salvation. I'm referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's on the basis of what Christ has done that the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts to change us. It's it's the Holy Spirit's work that makes us responsive to the gospel And so, in other words, Jesus doesn't offer us a way to be delivered from the devil and then just leave it to us to respond. That would be like someone coming to a prisoner, telling him that there's this wonderful new life for him outside of prison, but he first has to set himself free from his own shackles. Jesus merited for us everything that is needed to completely deliver us from spiritual bondage. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to break the shackles of spiritual bondage. I'm referring to regeneration. I'm referring to that work of the Holy Spirit giving us a new mind and a new will and, 
and, and the ability then to respond to Christ as he is presented in the gospel. But without that initiating work of the Holy Spirit, we would remain children of the devil, slaves of Satan. But now by faith, we are children of God. And so God is not going to let us be taken back under the, the devil's dominion. The devil is not going to be able to destroy us. Yes, these enemies of God, your enemies, they plan and they scheme. They are hateful. They want nothing less than your complete destruction. They are united in their efforts. They surround us. But in Christ, we have a Savior who is greater than all our enemies. And so we pray to him. We pray because we are weak. We pray that the Lord will enable us to stand firm by equipping us. In that way, he will protect us. You see, you must not picture the Christian life as hanging out at the palace while Christ is at the battlefront. You must fight in the strength that Christ gives you. You must pray for strength to do battle because there is no such thing as a child of God who doesn't resist and fight spiritual enemies. But with this fight, know that there is hope. Fight with the hope of knowing that the victory is yours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that through the, the many generations of your church that have always been enemies, people who have, under the inspiration of the, of the devil, sought our destruction in this way to, to attack you, um, Father, we pray that we would recognize these enemies for who they are, that we would recognize the various forms that they take here in this New Testament era, and Lord, that we would be on our guard, and that we would, Lord, continue to pray to you, seeking your help, your strength, especially that comes through your word and spirit, uh, that we would recognize these enemies, that uh, we would see exactly the lies and the deception and the temptations for what they are, that, Father, we would stand strong in the truth of your word, that we would strong, stand strong as witnesses, as, as light, despite the fact that the more we stand for you, the more we draw the anger and the hate of the world around us. Father, give us, we pray, all that we need uh, to continue this spiritual battle. And may we, in all of it, uh, trust in you, May we have the hope of knowing that we will never again come under the dominion of the devil and that even though he does so much to outwardly hurt your church, yet ultimately your church will never fail. Um, you continue to save your people and to build your church, much like we have seen in the country of Haiti where despite all of the turmoil there, your church continues to be built. Um, Lord, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.